the last time I spoke, we went through Deuteronomy 32 and the Song of Moses. And in that song, there's, in some ways, same song verse. Uh, it's all a story of Israel and her failings for the most part. But, but he never gives up, never ceases caring, but has always loved her and always will in spite of her or ourselves. And he is making a small resurrection, of course, of spiritual Israel out of the dregs of physical Israel, which is beginning to greatly suffer the plagues of Deuteronomy 28 instead of the blessings for obedience. But hopefully we can recover enough from the destruction that has befallen us that we can begin to have the blessings a physical nation. And it is my hope and belief that that will occur. God says when he puts us under pressure, we will repent and repent early. So he knows that the pressure he is putting us under is going to have a positive effect. You know, we might get discouraged. We might be frustrated at times. We may look at things and think, well, that's not what it ought to be or this isn't right or whatever. We can have all kinds of attitudes about each other and about ourselves and perhaps even at times a little bit about God. But that's because we've lost focus and understanding and don't grasp how much He truly loves us and is trying to pull us through this. But He knows that diamonds can only be made through heat and pressure and silver can only be refined through heat and pressure. So, he's working with us and on us, and we need to comprehend that that is part of the love that he's showing to us. And if we respond properly, and I think we're converted enough, that we can recognize why we have the trials, troubles, and tests, and difficult times that we do, and it is to drive us to our knees. It is to help us turn to God. Because more and more we should begin to see that turning to any element of hope in this world is indeed hopeless. There's nothing out there that is any good. And the only good we can achieve or find in this life is the goodness of God. So when we finally truly grasp that and make that turn, we'll find that he hasn't forgotten us. So let's go on then to chapter 33 today with the encouragement that he gives us in spite of ourselves in chapter 32. He tells Moses at the end of chapter 32 that uh, he would not see the land of promise given to children, or he wouldn't, or at least he wouldn't go there. He would be shown from the top of a high mountain. Anyway, let's go to 33. And this is the blessing wherewith Moses, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel before his death. So he recognized their faults. He recognized their problems. He certainly was part and parcel with their rebellion against, with their attitudes, their frustrations, their mutterings, their mumblings, their gripes and complaints. He had lived with that for actually 40 years plus. The 40 years in the wilderness, and for a little while at least before they even left Mitzrayim. So he knew them well. He also knew God well, being a friend of God. And he knew God's attitude. He also had penned the blessings at the end of Genesis that Jacob had bestowed upon his sons. And it, I am sure was a reflection of those blessings that God had decreed upon the various sons of Jacob that Moses had in mind as he gave this blessing. So, it is a very positive ending to a very sad litany of error and sin (laughs) that proceeded throughout those 40 years in the desert. There is hope, even at the darkest hour. We should bear that in mind. This history is written for hope for us, for opportunity for us. 
So in spite of everything that had happened, he gave a blessing to the children of Israel before he died. And he said, The Eternal came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of saints from his right hand when a fiery law for them. That is interesting because the numbers did not necessarily reflect what stood before him at Sinai. There were at that point undoubtedly thousands of, or I mean millions of people. And yet he talks about came with ten thousands of saints. Now it may be partially a reference to angels that may have accompanied Christ to Mount Sinai to deliver the law, but it is uncannily similar to Revelation 5.11, where it talks about Christ returning with tens of thousands of his saints. Jude even mentions, I think, tens of thousands. And certainly Exodus talks about how God would bless the thousands who would serve him and keep his law. He did not say millions. That has always struck me as very interesting. But he did not expect millions and billions of people in this age to obey him. Only thousands. And several references then are made to tens of thousands. And I think that Jude and John and Revelation picked up what was said here, understanding that the 144,000 consists, or the first fruits consists of the 144,000. And that is tens of thousands. 10,000 times 14 plus 4. So, uh, you, you would number it that way in the tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands. So, this is not only, this is a prophecy, obviously, because he's giving a blessing that would see them through, down through the generations and ages, until today. So, a blessing that God pronounced through Jacob and now reiterates through Moses before they were to go into the promised land. Verse 3 is very telling. Yes, he loved the people. He loved the people. We know that John told us that God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only begotten Son that they might not perish but have everlasting life. I was reflecting on that thought this morning a little bit and how God truly loves each and every individual who has ever existed on this earth. They're all his children, one way or another, and converted, unconverted, to be converted in the future, or whatever, or even prodigals, outright rebels, he has loved. And outright rebels probably will also repent during the great white throne judgment, and achieve salvation. No human being, does God say, in the Bible, anywhere, is lost. We might draw that about Judas, or about Esau, perhaps. They were certainly to some degree in jeopardy, but it does not say they were eternally lost. It said they had difficulty repenting. And since they were never truly converted, never had God's Spirit, it's very possible their chance is yet ahead. Remember, Judas was selected to fail. Christ chose him knowing ahead of time, and he even told the Father when it was all said and done, I have only lost one, and that's the one that we determined ahead of time I would lose. A prophecy had to be fulfilled, and Judas was the one selected to so fail. You and I have not been selected to fail. But that does not mean necessarily that he failed in the possibility of eternal life. If he was never converted in the first place, then there's a good chance he will be converted in the future. So, God loved the people. We place a value, don't we? Sometimes when a human being dies, there are hundreds, 
perhaps even thousands who attend a funeral. Mandela's recent one, I don't know, didn't see numbers, but I'm sure there were probably thousands of people there. And millions, if not billions, tuned in by television. So there were a lot of people who placed a lot of value on Nelson Mandela. And then there are people who die, and it's almost without recognition. In other words, no one valued them. I happen to think of something I hadn't considered since sometime in the late 60s when I was pastoring the Miami church and there was an old fellow there who had attended church. I, I don't remember details now. It's been so long and I didn't know him well, but I think he was baptized. I'm pretty sure he was. But he had no kin uh, and it turned out really no friends. And one day he died and the landlord I guess he had given the landlord my name as a contact, or I don't remember the exact detail, but I got a call anyway that he was dead, so I rushed over there, and uh, he had no kin, no one responsible, and the county, of course, gave him then a pauper's burial, or in that case, I believe it was a cremation, since it's cheaper for the county to do it that way. But I talked to the mortician, and uh, arranged for a little service or ceremony before he was to die. I don't remember the detail now as to why uh, it was not made public. I think perhaps it was that the county wanted to get this done as quickly as possible, not have storage bills and all of that kind of thing. They wanted it done immediately. So I hastened down there, and there were two people there, the mortician and me. No friends, no church members because of the suddenness of the situation and the county's pressure. No one really valued the life of that man. Died a pauper's death and had a pauper's funeral. I think I merely gave a prayer. I didn't say much. Wasn't He couldn't hear me and the mortician wasn't interested. And that was it. Gone. No value, as far as anybody knew or thought. Perhaps a few members of the church would have come had there been time. But a lot of people die that way on this earth, and nobody cares. Nobody valued them. Nobody shows up. But a nugget of beauty that I found in that is that God was there. God knew it. God knew that man. I don't remember his name, but God does. He knows what slot he has him set in for the resurrection. Very likely the first. A man whom nobody knew at that point much, or certainly cared about much, died in the faith, and I believe he will rise to meet Christ in the air when he returns as one member of the Bride of Christ. I have no reason to uh, doubt that. And if not that, certainly in the second resurrection, if he wasn't truly converted, because he was a fine man, as far as I ever knew. But God always cares for each and every last human being on the face of the earth and it doesn't matter how much you or I might value any one given person. God values them very highly as his own children. So when he says, yes, he loved the people, we need to grasp as much as we can what that really means. All his saints are in your hand. So Moses was again projecting into the future that those who would follow after, who would obey God and then in that sense be saints, not Catholic saints, but God speaks of the converted people who are obeying him as saints very clearly in the New Testament. You don't have to be set up as a model of anything in the name of a religion but simply serve God and you are a saint. 
properly baptized and put into that category. So he says, <clears throat> they are in the hand of Christ. Could you be in better hands than that? And they sat down at your feet, every one shall receive of your words. Now they didn't receive with joy the Ten Commandments, did they? In fact, while they were being given, they were partying. And then they rejected them offhand almost immediately, and even reissued, it didn't mean a whole lot more to Israel. And yet God still loved this generation that survived that, enough that this blessing came that is a prophecy for the generations to come. He says, Moses commanded us a law, even the inheritance of the congregation of Jacob. So they're reminded that you may not have been what you should have been in the desert, but you are still the children of Jacob, of those twelve sons, thirteen actually, and these blessings, this intent, this direction of God will still be upon you. So then he begins to give the individual blessings. Verse 6, Let Reuben live and not die, and let not his men be few. So even Reuben, whom God adjudged and Jacob, or, and Jacob said was unstable as water, uh, don't let Reuben die out. Let Reuben survive. Let him be great in number. So a very positive spin is put on a person who had had some pretty heavy difficulties in his life. And yet those who were to follow Reuben uh, were God or Moses asked a blessing upon them that they would not be few but greater in number. Verse 7, and this is the blessing of Judah. And he said, Hear, Eternal, the voice of Judah, and bring him to his people. Now, we know through history, and some of the prophecies indicate that, that the Jews were not well thought of quite frequently and were uh, misused and abused quite a bit. But the plea is made that God will hear Judah, even though people might not so much. And bring him back in, because the Jews have been alienated to a great degree, and we see it today even, down this far down the road, that this prophecy is in effect. Many people are disinclined to love the Jews. And yet God said, bring them back among your people. So God will do just that. <coughs> Let his hands be sufficient for him. In other words, let the Jews be self-sufficient in that sense. Others are not going to support. They're not going to provide for them. They needed to be self-sufficient. And Moses, through God's Spirit, recognized that and saw the tendencies of that people and how they might alienate their brothers. And certainly, by the time Christ walked the earth, they were very alienated and uh, basically hated of a lot of people, and they were very self-righteous and, in that sense, self-sufficient, were they not? They didn't need anybody. They were arrogant and so on. They took care of themselves. And be you an help to him from his enemies. Now, God had decreed that the Jews would have a tough time. So, Moses recognized that and said, give them help and protection. Uh, you, you can say, well, that hasn't been fulfilled. Well, they're still around, aren't they? A lot of them have been killed in war. And yet, they've survived and there has been a certain protection there because there are people who would have killed every Jew on earth by now if they had the chance. So they've received a certain amount of help from their enemies. Verse 8, And of Levi he said, Let your Thummim and your Urim be with your Holy One. Aaron was the head of the Levites, and uh, he was the high priest, excuse me, and he made... Uh, he cast the Urim and Thummim, and even on his breastplate there were the twelve different stones that would light up to designate which tribe it was that was being selected for praise or <laughs> punishment or whatever. Uh, and God had 
something to do with that. Let your Urim be with your Holy One, whom you did prove at Massa, and with him whom you did strive at the waters of Meribah. So God had issues with Aaron, and somewhat of also with his rebellion along with Miriam against Moses. But God strove with Moses as well, who was a Levite, obviously. Aaron was his brother. Who said to his father and to his mother, I have not seen him, neither did he acknowledge his brethren, nor knew his own children, for they have observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach Jacob your judgments and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt sacrifice upon your altar. So he's... Uh, delineating some of the duties and the circumstances that uh, Levi would fulfill from there forward. And again, we see in Ezekiel, even here at the end time, a Levitical priesthood, I think, will be reestablished for a short time, maybe in preparation for the millennium where it will be needed, as sacrifices clearly will be done then, uh, as Isaiah 66 shows. And I think Zechariah 14 even. <coughs> Uh, verse 11, bless eternal his substance and accept the work of his hands. Smite through the loins of them that rise against him and of them that hate him that they rise not again. So the Levites were put in a position of leadership among the tribes for spiritual leadership and guidance. And God knew that that would work against them in the eyes of many people. Because human beings resent authority by nature. Uh, we resent it from our parents, from early childhood, and it gets worse, worse as we develop toward adulthood, and then maybe subsides to some degree as we mature. But none of us like human authority in any form over us. We don't even like our own authority over us, do we? Does not your body, does not, do not your emotions rebel against the good things that have been put in your mind through the Word of God that you know you should do, and yet your mind and your body wants to go a different direction? You don't even want to listen to yourself, much less anybody else. So that is innate within us. And God knew, and Moses had experienced that any human being who is also imperfect, who is put in a position of authority of any kind, is going to create a certain amount of resentment uh, that is inevitable. It just comes with the territory. So he asked that God take care of those who would rebel, that he be involved and not let that be overwhelming or overcoming. Well, God clearly here, as we read through this, understands the difficulties, the problems, the tendencies of not only each tribe of Israel, but also of human beings as a whole. Verse 12, And of Benjamin he said, The beloved of the Eternal shall dwell in safety by him, and the Eternal shall cover him all the day long, and he shall dwell between his shoulders. So Benjamin would remain, what's between the shoulders? The head, the mind, the brain, the, the affection, the caring, would, uh, would remain. And Joseph, of course, was very close to Benjamin. I have sometimes wondered if Benjamin might be uh, Canada uh, as opposed to Norway is, was published by the church many, many years ago. There's, there's something a little disquieting about that in a way. It says that, that Benjamin would raven as a wolf, and that's probably the primary reason that uh, we penned the moniker of, uh, of Benjamin on Norway because they, the Vikings were a very fierce, warlike people. The Norwegians today don't seem to be that way, and... Of course, Canada, they're not out warring against anybody and don't seem to have that kind of an attitude. So uh, I don't know that you can use that uh, particularly uh, as an identifying factor in either one of those countries at this point. Uh, 
But uh, Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph, have always been close with the Canadians, and they're very closely related as brothers. And there they are, right above our shoulders, just to the north. So I, I don't know. That's just wild speculation without a whole lot of of uh, research behind it. But it's just a question that has occurred to me at times. But at any rate, in some way, it kind of fits this. And then he immediately mentions Joseph. And of Joseph, he said... Now remember, there's two sons of Joseph... Ephraim or Ephraim and Manasseh. And of Joseph he said, Blessed of the eternal be his land. He doesn't say that of the others in the same way at all. And if you go back to Genesis 49, it talks about being a vine running over the wall and all kinds of blessings given to Joseph in particular. And the land itself being blessed. For the precious things of heaven, for the dew, and for the deep that couches beneath. So, from the heavens above, the rain, the snow, the dew that comes from the ground, the blessings from above, and blessings from beneath. Whether it be down in the seas off our coasts, or beneath our soil, uh, where there are many, many natural resources, and so on. He says, Joseph would have those things. And for the precious fruits brought forth by the sun, and the precious things put forth by the moon. So the cycle of sun and moon uh, producing agricultural abundance within Joseph. And we find particularly in other scriptures of Ephraim. And we'll see even that uh, delineation is made in this very context as we go on down. Uh, quite a bit is said about Levi, several verses, or Levi, several verses, but a great deal is said then about Joseph. So the spiritual leadership was given attention, and the physical peoples of Joseph, particularly then of Ephraim, are also given. And for the chief things of the ancient mountains, and for the precious things of the lasting hills, which would, I think, indicate uh, minerals, the vast treasures that are hidden within the mountains of Joseph. And there are no mountains in Britain to speak of. There's some hills, but really no mountains. That would indicate maybe more on this side, where there are truly lots of mountains and many, many precious things buried in those hills. And for the precious things of the earth and fullness thereof, and for the goodwill of him that dwelt in the bush. So Christ appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And he said, let not only these blessings of the land be there, but also the goodwill of God, or of Christ. This is laid on a whole lot thicker than anything we've read so far about anybody, is it not? Let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph, and upon the top of the head of him that was separated from his brethren. So Joseph was... Hated of his brethren. They were very, very jealous. Sold him into slavery. And later bowed before his feet, as his dream had indicated would happen. And he was used to deliver Jacob and the whole family when the drought hit. And we know that story of seven years of plenty and so on. So references are made to he who had been separated, but then became the chief, the leader, and as Jeremiah 31 says, God even changed the birth order to make Ephraim the firstborn. Double blessing, if you will, above anyone else. His glory is like the firstling of his bullock. So he even makes a reference here to firstborn, or that category. And his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them... He shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. So, for good or for bad, Joseph would have a presence, an importance, 
be a factor in the lives of people all over the earth. We had the British Empire which came and went, and now we have the, dare I say it, American Empire, and it is that in many respects. Uh, we may not claim sovereignty over many nations, but do we not make them do our beck and call militarily, and have we not financially put them in a position over the last decades of subservience, of dependence upon American welfare, or the dole, if you will, so that the whole earth, essentially, has been blessed by, or taken care of, or pushed about by this nation. Somewhat by Britain earlier, but on a more worldwide scale affecting the whole earth more in the end by this nation. And then he makes a very telling comment. And they are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. That is one of the defining statements that I used when I was showing that I think we were wrong all those years ago about Ephraim being uh, Britain and the United States being Manasseh. We have by far and away outstripped population-wise uh, the British Isles, far and away. Uh, ten thousands to one thousand. So that is part of the identifying of which of the brothers is which. And certainly here at the very end time, America has done far more, and Britain is really basically just a satellite ally of this country today and follow our lead in almost everything. I won't go into that in more detail. We have, and I, I did in past sermons, but just to reiterate here a little bit so we understand uh, maybe more clearly just who we are and what our role is here at the end time. And that certainly answers Deuteronomy 8, 7, and 8, which describes the promised land almost in the same words that Moses used here to describe Ephraim in particular, even above Manasseh. It certainly doesn't fit the Middle East in any form or fashion. Anyway, in verse 18, And of Zebulun he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in thy going out, and Issachar in your tents. So those two, very brief, uh, be blessed in your tent, be blessed out of your tent, uh, be blessed. But no pronouncement, no specifics, no going on and on about it. Just, they're there and doing okay. And if you look at the Scandinavian countries, that's pretty much where they sit in the world today. Or uh, some of the small countries in Western Europe. Uh, Holland and Belgium and Luxembourg and, and the Scandinavians and these more minor tribes of Israel, they're there. Uh, they've had some blessings. Things have gone fairly well for them. But not much said, and they certainly don't influence or have the resources that we do right here. Uh, verse 19, They shall call the people to the mountain. There they shall offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall suck of the abundance of the seas and of treasures hid in the sand. So Israel would have blessings that they could suck out of the sea, the sand, the earth, in a way that others would not. Now there are a great number of natural resources in places like Africa and South America, some places in Asia, and so on. But they have not had the societal capacity to really enjoy, embrace, and appreciate those resources that are there. Other countries have come in, and Israel, Western Europe, were the leaders among those, essentially, and took 
those resources from some of those continents. Essentially rape them of them, if you will. And they did not fall to the benefit of the people who lived there. They accrued to the wealth of Israel. I'm thinking in particular of Africa, which has been plundered uh, by other nations for the most part. Uh, verse 20, And of Gad he said, Blessed be he that enlarges Gad, he dwells as a lion and tears the arm with the crown of the head. Don't know exactly what that means. We could speculate a bit, but he provided the first part for himself because there, uh, in a portion of the lawgiver, was he seated, and he came with the heads of the people. He executed the justice of the eternal in his judgments with Israel. Uh, wasn't Gad? Was that the one that it said, or was that Dan? Judges, the mother named the, the children. I read it this morning, and now it slips my mind. But anyway, in a position of a certain amount of consideration of judgment over others. And of Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's whelp. He shall leap from Bashan. Dan would have some of the attributes of a lion, a lion's cub uh, with the tendencies of a lion and Dan is even left out of the 144,000 revelation for whatever reason God had for doing that because he bit at uh, his brothers 23 and of Naphtali he said O Naphtali satisfied with favor and full with the blessing of the eternal possess you the west and the south now that was, of course, in the Promised Land. Uh, if we've identified those nations right now, they're up in uh, Scandinavia, and they're certainly not in the West and the South, but will be again when the Promised Land is, is, is designated. And of Asher, he said, Let Asher be blessed with children, let him be acceptable to his brethren, and let him dip his foot in oil. In other words, essentially be a blessed people and not have a lot of troubles and trials and difficulties uh, as is commonly human. Your shoes shall be iron and brass, and as your days, so shall your strength be. There is none like to the God of Israel, or Jeshurun, who rides upon the heaven in your help and in his excellency on the sky. So, part of the blessing is that Israel would have the attention of God. What greater blessing could there be than that? The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms, and he shall thrust out the enemy from before you, and shall say, destroy them. Now, historically, that happened shortly after this was written. As we'll see in the next chapter, Moses went up to die and Joshua led the people forthwith into the promised land. Here, I think. And God did run their enemies out before them. The first thing happened was Jericho's wall falling on the ground when they marched around it and shouted and blew the trumpets. So God began that process right away. And the people's trembled and fell before them. Those spies who had said, we can't defeat these people, were right, yes. Uh, they couldn't, but God could. And Joshua and Caleb understood that, though the rest did not, could not, would not. But God led them there and took care of them. And that is a story that we need to remember today as we see forces and powers that be in this world, in this nation, state, county, wherever, that would do us in, that would do us wrong, that would destroy us. And we can trust in God that they are not too big, that they can be taken care of. Christ will find faith on the earth. His statement did not say he would not, but it left a certain amount of doubt. 
will I find faith on the earth? And other scriptures indicate that yes, there will be some, but it won't be in the minds and hearts of very many. It will not be a common thing. Questionable, in other words. Barely there. And we understand and need to be some of those who have that kind of faith that Joshua and Caleb possessed, but virtually no one else did. So it's there as a testimony for us to be aware of. He'll thrust out your enemy before you and shall say, destroy them. I think we've seen that continued even in modern days. Normandy was an example. Someone told me of another one recently that had almost the same implications of Normandy, and I don't recall the detail, but God saw that we prevailed. World War I, World War II, and now we are going the other direction and not prevailing in the mindless wars that we are involved in around the world. Because we began to disobey. So now instead of the blessings that we received at first and that continued until the tipping point, we are beyond the tipping point now in this country. We will not serve God. We will not repent. We will not obey God as a nation. Over 50% are on the take now in some form of welfare or dole or whatever. And once a nation gets where more of its people, more of its people depend upon a handout than support themselves and others, that nation has no turning back. It only has turning down. There's no way out. We are being cursed with the curse. Realize this. We are now between 16 and 17 trillion dollars in debt, and you and I do not understand how much that is. But I read a statistic this morning in an article that said that the estimated value in dollars of the entire world is between 67 and 67 trillion dollars. All the land, all the continents, all the buildings, all the improvements, everything rolled into one in dollar value. I don't know who estimated it or how they came up with the figure, but that's the estimation. Would be about 66 or 67 trillion. Now we are admittedly in debt between 16 and 17 trillion. That works out to 8/33rds or almost 25% of the entire value of the entire earth. I'm sure they didn't include natural resources under the soil and so on, but just the land values and the improvements that man has made, if you call a lot of it improvement anyway. But what's a house worth in Hong Kong and what's one worth in Wisconsin? You know, they, they kind of put it all together and came up with that estimate. So we are roughly 25% in debt of the whole value of the earth. And I don't know what percentage the United States makes up of the total land mass of the earth, but I pulled the globe down and looked at it, and, and it looks like we are 10% or less of the land mass of all the nations on earth. So we hold, or are, 25% of the debt load of the entire value, and we make up probably less than 10% of the land mass itself. You know what that has created? Jealousy, resentment, and frustration. Now understand that that's only our real live in-hand debt that even people in the government recognize. Our debt clock, if you will. 
But then occasionally we hear that there is this indebtedness that we have or commitments we have made which we have not funded. In other words, debt we have that we do not have the money to cover. Social Security is one of the big ones. The Social Security Administration is almost out of money. And they have not funded that. In other words, the money that came in that you and I and people have paid has gone for other purposes rather than being there in reserve for you when you retire and start getting those benefits. It's not there, though promised, and supposed to be there. But it's like the piggy bank, you know. We need money, so we shake the piggy bank. So we have all of those debts we are committed to, which are ironically in about the $66 trillion value. So we are committed to debt that is worth more than the entirety of every asset on earth. And that's only the beginning. We are $1.5 quadrillion in debt through financial instruments, such as loans and re-loans and mortgages and other financial instruments, bonds and so on, that have been sold and resold and resold again under interest and leveraged at 10, 20, 30 percent their value. They say some mortgages, for instance, have been sold 30 or 40 times. You went to a bank or FHA or wherever and got a loan on your house, maybe. And those companies or that government or whoever was holding that note, that mortgage, sold it to someone else for a profit. They thinking that they would then perhaps get that money back in interest over time or that the value of the property would increase and they would come out ahead that way, or that they simply wanted to use it as an asset to make their bottom line look better. Whatever reasons, they buy and sell those mortgages. So that today we have a giant fraud going on that has not even begun to hit where people do not even know who actually holds the note on their land. They may still pay at the bank, but that bank sold that loan years and years ago and somebody else bought it and somebody else bought it and somebody else bought it and now the paper trail is lost. And who knows who could foreclose on someone's house that still has a mortgage. 1.5 quadrillion that is utterly unfathomable as a number. Did he not tell us there in Deuteronomy 28 that we would start out blessed and be lenders and not borrowers as the head and we used to be the richest nation on earth? Just a few decades ago we were still the richest nation on earth. More people owed us more than anyone else. And now, a transformation has occurred in just a few years, whereby we are by far and away, by far and away, the most indebted nation on earth. Our life expectancy is now number 51 among the nations. With all of our abundance, with all of our health care, there are 50 nations whose people have a life expectancy longer than ours. And if you consider prophecy, all of them do. <laughs> because we're going down first. But you know what? God has not forgotten us. Remember the song of Moses? 
In spite of yourselves, in spite of all your decadence, your immorality, your disobedience, your rebellion against God, I will never leave nor forsake you. I will bring you to repentance. Romans 11:26 and all Israel shall be saved. And in that same context is the Gentiles who were grafted in who will also be saved as part of spiritual Israel ultimately. So that it will spread to the whole earth like a gigantic tree. We do not deserve the mercies of God. When I hear somebody say, God bless America, my heart aches. Because I know we are in no condition to be blessed by God. We were, and we threw it away. And now, we are the tail and not the head. And it's going to get worse, by far. And then ultimately... Christ will return and things will change and the millennium will go throughout Israel and then the whole world. Well, God is going to see this thing through. And while things look very grim for this nation, they're looking up for us because God has decided to work with us, to punish us, to spew us out of his mouth, to wake us up, to help us overcome Laodiceanism and self-righteousness and to turn to Him with true humility and meekness. And in so doing, be prepared to be the bride of Christ and teach the rest of the world how to live in peace and happiness and harmony. And it is going to happen because God has decreed it. So Moses gives a lot of those elements in Deuteronomy 28 and again in 32 in the Song of Moses, knowing how human beings would be and how Israel would be, but knowing also he had the capacity to lead their hearts to repentance and service of God. So he says God will thrust out the enemy. Does he not tell the church that he will be a wall of fire around it and a canopy above and take care of us in the end time? We can have faith and hope in that. He says we were brands in the fire, plucked out of the fire. What is that remnant that God is going to stir to come and finish his work and build a latter temple? It is people who had been spewed out, who were headed for the tribulation. We're going into the fire of tribulation. And God plucks them as a brand out of the fire, not just an individual there in Zechariah 3, but that whole group is plucked out of the fire and given opportunity to serve God and not have to go through the tribulation. So even in our decadence and our Laodiceanism, God has chosen to help us turn to Him through adversity, which we are now in. And He says we will repent early. So Israel then shall dwell in safety alone. That remnant called to build the latter temple will be the only ones protected. The rest of this nation, the rest of the church even, are going into the fire of tribulation. Sad but true. So we'll live in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also his heaven shall drop down dew. He will protect and he will provide. Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like to you, O people saved by the eternal? And when it is said and done with physical Israel, and they repent and turn to God, he will make them the model nation. And then all the nations of the earth will come up to Jerusalem to keep the feast. Zechariah 14. So this all turns out good. It's just kind of tough sledding now for a while. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like to you, O people saved by the eternal. And in this day and age, the remnant will be the only ones to come build the temple. So as an end-time application... 
in this very prophetic chapter, he's referring to us and those who will join us, if we are indeed included. We're in the right area, and God called us here to do the job. We'd better not abdicate it. We had better not give up on it. We had better not deny it. We had better fulfill it so that we can be a part of what Moses is saying. He'll be the shield of your help, and who is the sword of your excellency? And your enemy shall be round, found liars to you, and you shall tread upon their high places. So God will bless above all peoples on earth. Chapter 34. And Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Nebo to the top of Pisgah that is over against Jericho. Remember, Jericho was right inside the border of the promised land as they first came in. And the Eternal showed him all the land of Gilead to Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah to the utmost sea, and the south, and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, unto Zoar. I find that an interesting description. There is no place in the Middle East where you could get up high enough to see the surrounding country and be able to have a visual that far away of the land around you. Now, I was out here a couple of weeks ago uh, to Yellowstone Mesa, where we get the gravel for our road. And I went out to the edge there and found a rock, the highest point around. And I could very easily see Mount Humphrey down by Flagstaff. I could easily see clear over to Perea, the end of the uh, monument area. I could see up over the top to Cedar Mountain and to the west, Pine Mountain there at St. George and a volcano on beyond it. And I could see down the mountains there just above Mesquite, Nevada. And I wasn't on the highest point around. I was just out at the top of Yellowstone Mesa. But I could see a long, long way. Now, if this was over by Jericho and up on a high mountain, it makes me wonder. If I go to the area that I believe is the center of the promised land where the ancient original Jerusalem was, and I look about, which I did the other day, and see the highest point, it would be Brian's head. And from the top of Brian's head, you can see in all four directions forever. I use that term, but a long, long way, like the song says, wasn't it? On a clear day you can see forever. But from the top of Brian Head, you can see the end of Cedar Mountain down towards Zion. You can see to the west, the east, and to the north for a long, long way. Was Moses on top of Brian Head? Was that the mountain with a different name where he could see the entire promised land and beyond? If you read these, the dimensions in Ezekiel, they only go about to the Nevada border, just to the east of Bryce, down to the Grand Canyon, and up to Provo, about, which used to be probably part of the Salt Lake. You can see that far. From up there, you can see the mountains there outside Salt Lake City. You can see mountains the other side of the Grand Canyon. You can see over to the Nevada border, and you certainly can see the mountains of Bryce and across the monument, Panguitch and beyond to the east. There's no place like that in the Middle East. Just a thought. It talks about the palm trees of Jericho, which was near Jerusalem. Do you realize that the archaeologists say there has been no climate change and nothing in the Middle East there where Jerusalem is that shows any indication of change over the thousands of years of mankind's history? But right up here on Cedar Mountain and some of these volcanoes around this area, there is 
activity that even the scientists say is no more than a thousand years old, and that the land has been upthrust, raised in elevation a great deal over the last few thousand years. So, there used to be an inland sea, and that's why you can find a Phoenician warship or a ship in the sand below the Salton Sea in California, because the Gulf of California used to come that far up. And it's why they were able to sail almost to Jerusalem, because this country was lower. And the scientists even recognized that it was lower. And there could have been palm trees. There still are, in Hurricane, St. George, Las Vegas. The only real difference is elevation. And there could have easily been palm trees in Jerusalem based on scientific thought and evidence. Right on Cedar Mountain, it says that that volcanic flow right there has occurred within the last 5,000 years. So there is evidence that this area has changed. There is no evidence that that over there has. So could have this area in southern Utah have had palm trees? Very, very likely. Anyway, verse 4, And the Eternal said to him, This is the land where he stood on top of the mountain. He could see all around. This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your seed. That would be us. His seed. Why, if we are the seed of Jacob, are we not in the Middle East? Only a very small part of one tribe is there. A little bit of Judah and mostly Esau, which is not even Israelite. But this entire land, almost this entire continent is given to Jacob. Canada is, the United States is, and even Mexico is not too much a stretch because those people down there are crossbreed Israelites. So this whole continent basically was given to Jacob or people who are part Jacobite. That's where Jacob is. And the leader and the most blessed, the tribe of Ephraim, is, is this land. It is the only one that is occupied by the sons of Jacob or a son of Jacob that could even begin to claim the promises of Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 33. Anyway, verse 5, So Moses, the servant of the Eternal, died there in the land of Moab, just outside the uh, promised land, according to the word of the Eternal. And he buried him, probably God in this case, or Christ, in a valley in the land of Moab over against Beth Peor, but no man knows of his sepulcher to this day. And Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his natural force abated. He did climb a very high mountain before he died. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended, and Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him. And the children of Israel hearkened to him, and did as the Eternal commanded Moses. So uh, Moses had ordained Joshua, and the people accepted that, and followed him as the leader into the Promised Land. And there arose not a prophet since in Israel like to Moses, whom the Eternal knew face to face. Uh, that would remain so, whether it was Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or one of the other prophets. None was of the stature of Moses, and that's why one of the two witnesses at the end is cast in the role of Moses as a type, because he was the by far and away the leader of Israel from the past. In all the signs and the wonders which the Eternal sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and in all that mighty hand and all the, the great terror which Moses showed in the sight of all Israel. So they gave Moses, uh, Joshua the same type of credence over all that they did to Moses. Well, that finally concludes the book of Deuteronomy. 
I hope there's been a lot there to remind us of who we are and what we need to do. A lot of encouragement, a lot of warning, and hopefully a lot of inspiration as well. Somebody told me just yesterday that uh, he had talked to a person who, not of the Church of God, who had been involved in a study of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and said it was all pretty, what was the word he used? Uh, Difficult, tedious, I think was the word. And I thought, well, he didn't read it with much understanding then, because the prophetic value of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the value in terms of our conduct are so high that to me I find it quite interesting that the history has, has been and is being repeated right here and now in this nation and in the Church of God. So it is very, very apropos, it is very timely that we consider it, and that's why God said from now on you read Deuteronomy at the feast. And if you're incapable of it, I guess, continue until February. <laughs>